basically out of, let's say, 10,000 people that attended a webinar, I would exclude all of the people who did not hit ICC, who did not hit ICT, who we are currently selling into, who we've already sold into. And the results are staggering. You go from 10,000 all of a sudden to 200 leads. And it's like, this is what your sales team was talking about. That these leads are quote unquote BS. So they don't call on any of them because they're like, these are, are BS. So I've re-metriced marketing teams to say like, I'm not gonna ask you to book the meeting and I'm not gonna ask you certainly to close the deal. Let's not be a martyr here. Hi friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Beck Holland. Beck's the founder and CEO at Flip the Script. And in this repeat episode from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, I talk with Beck about the state of sales development. We talk about some of the big challenges facing the sales development function, including some that perhaps are a bit counterintuitive. Like, do many SaaS companies actually have too much pipeline? that they're trying to work too many opportunities poorly rather than work fewer opportunities more effectively. We dive into the topic of KPIs, and we try to sort out the useful metrics from the popular but useless metrics. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Beck, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Beck, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. When I say Beck, I'm thinking of like, you know, the musician. First time I saw it's like, That's me. That's That's me. (laughs) Was that the inspiration for shortening your name? Uh, No, they they were inspired by me. Oh, I see. Okay. (laughs) They they actually, the band was named Becca, but then uh, Rebecca originally, and then they decided to go to Beck. uh, Beer too. Same story. Beck beer. I don't think I know Beck beer. Is that a Texas beer? Uh, I feel like every beer is a Texas beer, to be quite frank. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, there are some good beers down there, that's for sure. <laughs> so you've been hanging out in Texas during this whole pandemic. I actually have, yes. Yeah. So I, I came home. Um, I typically live in the Bay Area but I uh, in San Francisco downtown, but I came home for quarantine, you know, because I decided – I was starting to have a a relationship with my kitchen appliances since I uh, (laughs) live alone. And I'm like, I'm going to burst into tears if I ever have to leave them. This is getting very cast away very quickly. So I think I need to introduce myself to other people. (laughs) And your parents were happy to have you back? Uh, It depends on the day. I was going to say, how long long did that last? (laughs) Yeah, about 15 minutes. We got through (laughs) half of dinner. Half of dinner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's been a big challenge for a lot of people is, is uh, yeah, coming back home and, and quarantining with your folks. And it's like, seemed like a good idea, but now we've been together for two months and <laughs> I'm ready to kill you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think the, the, um, the hierarchy struggle is all off, right? Because, yeah. you know, you're always going to be a kid whenever you come home, which is fine Absolutely. at Christmas, but then you have to learn how to be an adult when your mommy's doing your laundry, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, you could do your own laundry. <laughs> yeah, that would be too difficult, I feel like, at this point. <laughs> well, that might be disrupting the flow of things. Exactly, the ecosystem. Yeah. I want to yeah. keep the ecosystem going. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. what my producer says as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, well, here's a question for you. Is, is, so, you know, you've gone home. 
What's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? Oh, that's a good question. I think the biggest lesson is that I need, is that I, I truly need people mm. around me. And I think I, I was there beforehand. Like I live alone, you know, and I'm obviously in tech. So like Zoom was, Zoom was my day before and Zoom is my day after. And I think I didn't realize how much interaction I got at work and, you know, different networking events, et cetera. Right. And after, and I'm like, oh, I can do this thing at, at home alone. And then after like a week, there was one week where I didn't open my front door, you know, because I was oh. terrified. And I think right. that I've really deeply learned that it is, um, that I need people, um, you know, in my life to, to truly be happy. Yeah. And well, I think a lot of people do. Uh, to that point, it's, is, it's my belief that when it's safe and when employers feel it's safe and the people, employees feel it's safe. People right. want to go back to the office. Yeah. You know, I think this this idea that everybody's yeah, we've given you flexibility to right. to work from home, and everybody's sort of suddenly taking on this role of like a you know, permanent gig employee to some degree. Yeah, it's it's like, <laughs> well, that's not what I want to do. I want to be in the office with my my colleagues and my friends and right. Yeah, go out for lunch and all those things. Yeah, and I think it, it cuts down whether we know it or not. It does cut down collaboration, right? Because... Undoubtedly, yes. Yeah, like there, there's just no way around it, right? You just lose some. I mean, you can walk over to Cindy's desk and Cindy's there. And, you know, so you inherently just talk, you know, amongst yourselves. And so I think I think that we're, we're coming to terms with that of, you know, maybe remote all the time isn't what we crave. Um, and we, we crave a balance. Yeah, well, the question will be whether employers feel that um, that's more important than the savings on real estate they might get from not paying people back. But, right. We'll see where the benevolence lies, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure there is any necessarily, but I, uh, yeah. I, right, I, I, I did think it was interesting. I was waiting because, you know, in Silicon Valley, it's like, uh, you know, we one up each other, right? Like that's that's what you do. And I don't know if that's that's everywhere, but it's certainly present there in the Bay. And so I was just waiting. I'm like, who's going to pull the trigger on full time full time remote? And it's like you had Slack that went till October, and it was ooh, mm -hmm. and then Google went oh December, and every ooh, and then Jack Dorsey comes in, and he's like permanent, and I'm like that. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one, way to you, goose, one way to goose your earnings, yeah. Right. I'm like, there it is. Yeah. yeah. There it is. Yeah, I think very few employees think, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I want to stay at home while my kids <laughs> while my kids are possibly learning from home or, right. or you know, coming back at two o'clock in the afternoon. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But interesting to say uh to say the least. Yeah. So before we talk about sales stuff is, you know, as I was learning about you is, is you've done some serious good works. I mean, you've, you've gone to Haiti and Brazil and Mexico and other places. So tell us, about, tell us about what you were doing in some of those places. I mean, good works. Oh, well, uh, thank you. I actually have never been asked about that on, in, in, uh, any kind of content, but, um, I had a knack or not a knack, but my parents, uh, uh, wanted to send me to different countries growing up to make me and help me understand uh, that not everyone lived like us. Mm -hmm. So, and I am, I was a little 
not angry, but a little frustrated with it at the time of like, why do I have to spend every single summer in Mexico, (laughs) you know, with no friends and like, it's hot here and dusty. But basically, since I was 10, um, my parents uh, with me uh, would go down with our entire family and we would build um, houses in poverty struck districts uh, just across the border in Mexico. So we actually did Tecate, Juarez, Rio Bravo, Reynosa, et cetera. But I did that every summer since I was 10. Um, and then For the entire summer? You'd do it for a few weeks? Or what, what would you do? Yeah, for a few, uh, few weeks was the minimum. And then anywhere up to, I ended up doing it um, for eight or nine weeks at some stints. But I, I did it every summer since I was 10. And that kind of grew into um, just a love for international um, and a love for people and a love for um, you know, enabling people and, and helping people. Um, and I think it was pretty formative for me, but I ended up going to Haiti during, um, you know, everything that went on. I think earthquake that was, disaster yes, relief, right? It, yeah. So that was what, 2011, um, that that happened and then got the opportunity. My brother went over to China for, um, a few years to be an English teacher. And, um, I got to go over there and help him for four months in total travel some of China, you know, and uh, be with him in Fuching. What seemed like one of the more remote places that you went to was Manaus, though, in Brazil. Yes. So talk about being in the middle middle of nowhere. So what what were you doing there? Yeah. So um, it was the same kind of, um, same kind of program uh, with um, Amazon Outreach was the name of them. And basically you got in a boat and you floated down the Amazon. This is gonna this is gonna paint a picture that people are gonna think I'm much better than I am, by the way. But it's my fear. But you would get in a boat and you would uh, travel down the Amazon and you would give um, medical relief supplies, etc., to cities um, that were on uh, the Amazon. So that was a very interesting experience. So I got to do that for um, I think it was a month in total that I I, I did it. So you're like on a Good sized boat, or you like on? Yeah, I mean, it's not <laughs> small it's, outboard motor boats, or it's, it's not exactly a you know a luxury yacht or anything. Right. But it, it was a pretty good sized boat. Um, yeah, so I I got to do that for about a month, but a very very interesting experience. Each country, you know, obviously is very different. Um, but it was it was a really formative experience, and I actually got to at one point I. Um, flew standby to get there. And I wrote a book that I've never published called standby and my experience doing that and what I learned even more so and the traveling to get there than I learned on, um, on uh, the Amazon, but both were very formative <laughs> for me. Well, tell us some of the stories about the travel that that, that got you there. What what did you learn on those? It broke me. It really broke me. <laughs> yeah, tell us more. So I I think that it broke down for me. Of I had especially since I spent so much time. Um, you know, you do a certain amount of quote unquote good works for other people, and you start thinking that you're good. Um, somewhere in there because Mm. it it, it gets kind of addictive, right? Of like, oh, this makes me feel good whenever I give this money away or if I, you know, help someone, et cetera. And I think it was pretty formative for me to understand, to begin to understand that, um, 
you know, A, it makes you better than no one and B, the people that you're giving it to, you are also no better than, and mm-hmm. that we're all, you know, given the right circumstances, uh, you know, pay, yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, that is a lifelong lesson for me, but it was ingrained, uh, in me on that trip. Not, that wasn't the beginning necessarily, but, um, you know, the, the last 10 to 15 years for me have been super formative in terms of, you know, understanding that, A, that could be me and that B, whenever someone does something that's I don't necessarily think is whatever, ethical, right, et cetera, that like I have a litany of those uh, that I have complied with as well. And so, um, you know, I need to need to back off and, and um, take my judgment hat off that I so easily put on. Okay. So how does that translate into the work you've done in sales? Do you carry that with you? Um, I would say in terms of, uh, there's two pieces. I would say the inclination or the love to enable at a bigger scale is from that time period. You know, Wishing you could help people, more people. Yes. Wishing that I could help people, um, and uh, the second piece that I, I just covered of learning that I'm no better than others, mm-hmm. I'm no lesser than others, but I'm no better than others too, that we're all tied, <laughs> you know, right. um, I think has been, was very, very uh, necessary for me or it's helpful for me coming into the business world because, you know, sometimes people do things, bad things, right? They lie or take money from you or, um, do whatever they've got to do to get a deal across the line. Um, and to understand beforehand that I, um, not only incapable of all of those things, but I have done all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's helpful to take off my, um, you know, red hot poker to others and only apply it to myself if I'm going to apply it. And what, well, that's very interesting. I was, I was wondering if one of the, the things, um, as well that you sort of take away from it, especially, you know, working in the Valley, which is, uh, you know, there's no shortage of money there and the influence of money (laughs) is, you know, working in these places where yes, there's poverty, but to some degree there's people, you know, not necessarily in the the face of a disaster, but yeah, they've, they found happiness in their lives that that's not based on material things. Right. Um, Is that something yeah, you've carried with you as well. And it's interesting how that runs up against sort of the culture you found in the Bay Area. Yeah. So I think uh, there's not necessarily, I did read a study at one point talking about the correlation of happiness. And it's like, well, how do you really know what's it, what's it sure. based on? Are we diving sure. into, you know, like, how would you test that? But um, I do think there's, there's not much correlation between money and uh, being truly satisfied and truly mm-hmm. happy and fulfilled and um and uh the character that you're building along the way to me that's one of the most rewarding things is when you are different and you notice that you're different and you didn't focus on that and it's not fake <laughs> mm-hmm. it's real and you're like oh okay i view that thing differently now and so um i think that that's one of the main esteem builders for people is you know your character and are you making progress and are you choosing to do something that's a little more difficult but it's the right thing and then are you telling no one about it you know it's the last piece like you know the husband comes home or whatever 
you know, are you posting that you bought your wife flowers or <laughs> are you doing it for the real reasons, the right <laughs> reasons? Um, so that's kind of the last step of, you know, once I do this thing, am I um, keeping it to myself, I think is, um, but one of the, mo- yeah, one of the most rewarding things is noticing if you are, if you do have the luxury of noticing your character progress, um, right. uh, then that's, that's, I don't know. I, I think it's one of the only few things that there are that are real. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, exactly. I mean, my, my, yeah, I remember my parents teaching me when I was young is that, you know, at the end of the day, when you leave the world, the only thing you leave with is your character. Right. And I, I think cash can be an inhibitor to that sometimes. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're a bad person, full no, disclosure, no. anyone listening, but it, it can be preventative. Um, and I can kind of give you an example. Uh, Sure. You know, when I went to college, I didn't know how to do my own laundry. <laughs> Not unusual, you know? I think. Yeah. Right. So, you know, my mom, uh, she enabled me, right? But sure. she also, to a degree, and this is very normal, but disabled me because I didn't know how to do my own laundry. Uh, very typical and normal, but you take that analogy to, um, you know, money. It's like, oh, okay, well, if I am born into money, et cetera, it's like, do I have to go through the things that build character? And the answer is in some cases, no. And so it can be harder from what I've seen for people with money, especially if it's inherited to it, it's like, it's, it's, that's why you run against runners that are your pace or faster because it, it builds you and it makes you kind of compete for that. Mm-hmm. And so it can take away that element of, Oh, I don't have to struggle and don't have to go through all these things and don't have to, uh, build the character of finishing something that I started doing what I say I'm going to do, you know, not talking about others, etc. Like a lot of those lessons can be learned. So I think that those sometimes to a degree, those uh, challenges are a luxury, they're a gift, right. because they they help turn you into something um, that you weren't necessarily before. And sort of following on in that, and this is a question I'm always curious about in talking to people who've hired people to work for them is, is, so how do you evaluate character and how important yeah. it is it when you're hiring people yeah i mean it, it's always important right like people are just people so um you know i think it needs to i i read something the other day where someone was commenting on um that the top two things that they look for are number one is this person has this person been a part of something that made them competitive early on like sports music, whatever have you, where they had to compete from an early age. Mm-hmm. And the latter um, and more important or indicator of uh, success in, in his case scenario was, did they overcome something? So whether that was, you know, not being born into money or, you know, maybe um, they're a person of color and they've, you know, incurred some different circumstances where they were left out, um, you know, or mm-hmm. uh, addiction, or, you know, alcoholism, et cetera. Like, was there something that you had to overcome and that one of those variables is, is great. And if a person has both in their unicorn, um, because they understand <laughs> what it's like to be competitive, they understand what it's like to be accountable and they understand what it takes to make it happen. Um, you know, to, to take that challenge upon themselves, um, and just, you know, make the math work, so to speak. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Well, I guarantee you that someplace, at some time, in some interview, there's going to be some person that said that 
yeah, the challenge I overcame was having too much. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And this, yeah, it's mid, mid, uh, I was malformed as a result of that and had right. to overcome having everything handed to me and, and right. learning that I had to go out and earn it myself. Right. Yeah. It's almost it will like, happen. yeah, <laughs> it's like, okay, I don't, I don't want your money, you know, not cause I'm mad, but because I need to, I'll never forget when I was, um, I, I think I was 12 and I went on a run with my, my dad and a couple of his work friends. And we were right near the end of the run. It was like a five mile run. And, uh, I actually told him this story a couple weeks ago and he, he vaguely remembered it, but right near the end of the run, I said, dad, I want to quit. Like you guys are going too fast. Like it's been five miles. I'm like, you know, my legs are half the size of yours. You're six, five. And I remember him saying, uh, you have to finish. And I said, why? I was all mad. I said, why? He said, it builds character. Yeah. That was a standard answer when I was growing up as well. (laughs) Right. I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, and I'll never forget that moment. And I'm like, he's right. You know, I, I did struggle for the last, whatever, you know, half of a mile, um, you know, but I made it and, uh, he empowered me to, to teach myself that with enough, enough something, um, you know, that I can make it happen. So I think that that can be a gift to people, especially early on, but you know, all throughout their life. Yeah. No, I, I think the the lessons from parents are really strong and, and, you know, I jokingly, say sometimes about some of the bad sales behaviors that we see mm-hmm. is someone will ask me, well, you know, what, what do you think is the cause of this? <laughs> and I, yeah. I say bad parenting. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm only half joking. Yeah. <laughs> on that. Joking until you realize that, that it's real. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> okay. So you've, you've run sales development at some high profile startups. And so in your opinion, what is the state of sales development? Oh, uh, it's, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, brutal would be be one word. Um, is it is it heading in the right direction? In your opinion, I I am doing everything I can to bend it there. <laughs> oh, there we go. So the answer is no. <laughs> yes, right? the answer is no. Yes, right. I mean I think that we it's headed for for the right direction in terms of I've seen people's um. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you've been doing a workout for the last 10 years Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you find out that that workout for whatever reason isn't effective. Right. And and it makes sense. But you're almost... You learn something new along the way. Science has evolved or whatever, right? Right. And you're almost mad about the last 10 years that you struggled and did all these things and now you understand why you didn't get your goal. And so, you know... I, I don't know what the percentages are, um, but in some cases, I've been the person who continued with the bad workout to justify the last 10 years, right? So mm-hmm. it's just an ego thing, and um, that is the most dangerous and crippling thing, I think, is is ego of, well, we're going to do this because it's always been done. We're going to do this because this is best in practice, you know, whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, I've seen studies of, you know, 76% of SDRs aren't hitting quota, and it's like, well... Okay, so best in practice. Well, except except you're going to hear back oftentimes from managers. Well, yes, but twenty four percent are right, and it's like, well, okay, we're we're not there. So learning learning the wrong lesson from from this situation. Yes, right. So I I do think um, that we we are getting there in terms of I think we're getting uh, more and more tired of where it's at. 
which provides the breeding ground, uh, arguably for a opportunity for a change. Um, so I do think that we're getting there in terms of, I do think the right components are being worked in to where, um, you know, people, um, now whether they'll be open to a different solution, even though it's not best quote unquote best in practice, um, but that gets them, their goal is a whole nother can of worms, but I do think we're getting there in terms of the, um, you know, we're tired of, we're sick of not seeing, uh, hitting our result. And we're, I think we're all assuming, um, at least from what I've seen, I, I picked my head up originally whenever I started deploying a, a number of, of different, quote unquote, different theories. I, I picked my head up from what we were doing on my first MarTech company. And I'm like, surely someone has figured this out. Like, surely I, I, I'm just crazy and in the wrong. So I just started, Andy, I just started banging down doors. Enterprise, mid-market, SMB. And I'm like, what are you doing? Is it working? You know, what's your data look like, mm-hmm. et cetera? And they're like, who is this girl? <laughs> like, why is she asking me all these very intimate questions? And I was just convinced. I'm like, someone surely has the answer and I'm the, the insane one. And come to find out, I'm like, oh, you know, programs were in a great case scenario where my program was at. Um, and the majority of them were, were falling behind even the metric that I had run against before I was deploying uh, most of this new theory. So um, TLDR, long-winded question. I do think that we're, we're getting to the point where we've had enough. And I just, I hope and, and lie in bed at night thinking about that we are innovative enough and open-minded enough to let that 10-year workout go and take the next step. Okay. So summarize for us, what is the 10-year workout, 10-year-old workout? That's currently happening in sales development. What are the what are the things that we've grown tired of? Yeah, so I don't know if it, we we've grown tired of the outcome. I don't mm-hmm. know if we've grown tired of any of the inputs, but we have certainly grown tired with the outcomes. Um, so I, I think the inputs that lead up to it, I'd say number one, if I had to boil it down to three or four, I'd say number one is the relationship between marketing and SDR. Um, I think is is uh, a big gap for us. The relationship between SDR and sales, um, KPI systems, and how we're metricing people, and the the last one and the only quote unquote tactical one that I would suggest would be um, that we are not personalizing. We don't know who our buyer is, mm-hmm. um, even though our buyer wants us to know who they are. <laughs> right. So, all right. Let's let's dig into a couple of those. Is um... In your opinion, where where do SDRs belong? Um, you mean in terms of who they roll up to? Yeah. Yeah. So I think they're a peer with marketing and sales. So I, I do believe, and I've had the luxury of working for um, uh, revenue leaders in the past, and that made the most sense. Of There are some decisions that aren't good for sales teams, uh, but they're good for the SDR team. There are some decisions that are not great for the SDR team, but are good for the sales team. And I think you need a someone who's looking at the entire funnel, um, who is quote unquote, an arbitrator of that conversation. So I do believe that a marketing head and an SDR head and a um, sales head are all three peers in a very appropriate funnel. Hmm. So a third organization. Yes, exactly. Well, if we're going to create a third role, I'm not, by the way, necessarily arguing, certainly in some case scenarios that you should have SDR. 
you know, sometimes full cycle is, is the answer. Uh, but if you're going to have one, I do think that it is, it can be toxic for them to roll up to either their negative ramifications to rolling up to sales or marketing for SDR. Interesting. So I think this is the first time I've heard this advocated (laughs) is, is that, that SDRs need to be their own, own organization. Yes. Yes. And so interesting. (laughs) Why, why? Well, I mean, uh, if I had to break it down, I've, I've answered to both. I've answered to marketing and sales, and mm-hmm. I've answered to revenue um, also. Uh, when I was answering to marketing programs, and I'm not uh, certainly not talking about anyone in specific. Uh, <laughs> just but, in case you're listening. Yeah, just in case yeah. you're listening, all of my former employers, <laughs> sweat, <laughs> gulp. Uh, no, but I when I've rolled up to marketing or uh, teams that I've seen that roll up to marketing, what ends up happening is you know, marketing, uh, it has in increasingly, um, been metriced or increased heat on producing ROI. Right. So they go to an event, you know, and they invest whatever, $50,000 in the event. And so from the C level, uh, whether that's CMO or not, uh, you will get, um, they want to prove the ROI from that event. So they'll have you call on, let's say you have 10,000 leads from the event. They'll have you call on all of them very, very aggressively. When you say these leads aren't great, they'll say, we'll call them more. (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, always the answer. Right. Of like, because they want to prove the ROI of the event, which makes sense. And so you'll see a lot of marketers do a lot of things. But one of the things they do primarily is, um, you know, oh, well, nothing has to necessarily be tied to ROI. And so, you know, the KPIs, it's not the marketer that's broken. It's the system that's broken. uh, broken. And so SDR can... um, have some negative ramifications of all of a sudden I'm calling on, um, you know, a lead that doesn't hit ICC ideal customer company or ICT ideal customer title. You know, it's an intern over at, you know, an SMB mm-hmm. company that's part of the product discipline when we sell into sales. Um, but you know, marketing doesn't have a solution for that. So they just say, call them more when, it, whenever it would be, even if they did book that intern sales, wouldn't take it. Um, so yeah. that's an example. Well, you <laughs> hope they wouldn't take it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden SDR spent their time, uh, on sure. something that didn't pre- yield the result that they, they wanted. So even if they did book it, it wasn't qualified. And so, um, we're up a Creek in the marketing case. Yeah. So that, that's an example of what can happen on the marketing side. Um, you know, so a lot that I've done to clean up the marketing processes, um, redefining uh, MQL to mean uh, someone who hits I, I uh, did away with ICP because ICP typically uh, is bereft of title. Right. So I broke it down to ICC and ICT customer company and customer mm-hmm. title, and um, basically out of you know let's say ten thousand people that you know attended a webinar. I would exclude all of the people uh, who did not hit ICC, who did not hit ICT, who we are currently selling into, who we've already sold into. Mm -hmm. And the results are staggering. You go from 10,000 all of a sudden to 200 leads. And it's like, this is what your sales team was talking about. That these leads are quote unquote BS. So they don't call on any of them because they're like, these are are BS. So I've re-metriced marketing teams to say like, I'm not going to ask you to book the meeting and I'm not going to ask you certainly to close the deal. Uh, let's not be a martyr here. Your new mm-hmm. KPI is is on brand and lead generate or uh, yeah, brand and lead generation. 25% on brand, meaning 
you know, 10,000 is your number. So 10,000 people now know, you know, who, who Oracle is if I'm at Oracle, you know, but the lion's share, 75% of your KPI is out of those 10,000 who hit I, who is someone that we want to sell into who we haven't already are the two questions I'm, I'm asking. And so that number is 200. Right. So now all of a sudden you see a marketing team uh, being aggressive about increasing the 200 number as opposed to 10,000 and, and they're not so comfortable. So, you know, long story short, whenever you have SDR answering into marketing, they, um, they inherit a lot of the uh, agendas and, um, you know, quote unquote, false activity that aren't going to give them the results that they want or the sales team, the results that they want or the org, the revenue results that they want um, because of the answering structure. Yeah. But that, that same thing could exist though, even if they're reporting for sales, I mean, you still could get exactly an, an, an influx of, of leads that really don't deserve consideration at that point in time. Right. So the exact same thing, it's just a mirrored, you just have to think about how people are metriced and what their agenda is based on that metric. But, you know, when you answer into sales, again, uh, I've seen, you know, if I'm an AE uh, and I am not hitting quota, then I want to point somewhere. It's either you or me, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely not me. So I, right, and it's not me. So I want to at least delay my churn. So I'm going to point somewhere, and the only logical spot to point is SDR. So if you are, you know, metricing on any kind of, if if AEs are qualifying appointments, you know, saying that they're qualified, especially if it's on subjective criteria, and keep in mind they're measured on uh, conversion, sales cycle, uh, and quota. So if I'm not hitting quota, I'm going to point to the SDR team, uh, number one. Number two, if I'm measured on conversion, I'm going to want to be the king or queen of conversion. So I'm only going to convert right before the deal closes to look like a princess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the third is sales cycle. So inherently AE teams, and again, shout out to AEs, I love them. I'm like, this is a broken system. It's not about the account executive and the SDR not getting along. Don't you know, save your beer money. This is not a personality thing. Um, but AEs, you know, have incentive to decline and disqualify um, SDR de- appointments unless you put some kind of objective criteria in place of did they hit these four things? And let's not talk about need as one of them or, <laughs> you know, ask them budget questions or are they the decision maker on the first date uh, to scare our prospects away because of process. But you have negative ramifications on the sales side too. Of they, they are, even if I'm hitting quotas and account executive, I always want more and better pipeline <laughs> or I'm not me. <laughs> well, but it seems like the counterpoint though, when you're talking about the A's or if, yeah, of course they'll disqualify and so on is that, by the same token, many of them are also being metriced on their pipeline coverage ratios. Right. So it's almost like there's an incentive to be less discerning about what becomes an accepted lead and a qualified opportunity. Yeah. So I, I've seen seen it seen it swing both ways, um, but it's it's uh, relationship with SDR is. I mean, there's a lot of case scenarios where it's like, okay. You know, in the beginning, if I have no pipeline, I'm going to take anything, right? I'm just going to take an appointment with anything. If you start stacking up my calendar, all of a sudden the bar uh, bar just starts raising. I'm only going to take these really, really high, great opportunities as the bar raises, and I'm never going to tell you to shut off pipeline. So, 
I do think that there needs to be some counter checks and balances mm-hmm. on both sides of the funnel to make it a funnel. Cause I've never walked into an organization and been like, Oh, this is a real funnel. <laughs> yeah. This is an actual, actual funnel. Right. Um, you know, so it's, you know, I, I've even talked to programs where the conversion ratios of like same types of leads being sent over from SDR, the qualification ratios uh, or uh, conversion rates varied from 10% with one rep to 90% for the next rep over a two year period, meaning it's a significant data set. <laughs> like, we're not, yeah. we're not talking about a week. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised you talk about a two year period. I'm surprised the one that accepted 90% of them was still there after. I know. <laughs> like, who's 90 and who's 10? And how can, like, can we get a mix? Um, yeah. you know. Well, along those land, lines, let me ask this question. So, again, in, in your mind, what, what's sort of the one KPI that everyone uses that you think is totally useless? Oh, there's so many, Andy. There's so many. Well, give us your favorite. Um, and why? Can I give you my top two favorite? Oh, sure, I don't, sure, I don't, sure. It's kind of like ice cream flavors. I can't limit it down to one. <laughs> I can't choose chocolate and vanilla. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, on the marketing side of the house, I would say I'm probably going to end up giving you three. Uh, MQL, as defined as someone who downloads content or attends a webinar, and that being my quote-unquote KPI. And so why is that useless? Uh, because the majority of MQLs uh, don't lead, they aren't an indicator of is this person qualified and do we want to sell into this person? And so the associated uh, principle typically is like, okay, most aggressive case scenario, I'm metriced on uh, closed one revenue off of these leads. That's very rare though. Most people would just, they would say marketing's quote unquote pipeline is if an intern from Oracle downloads a piece of content, well, Oracle's worth a billion dollars as a sale, hypothetically, if it closed, all of a sudden, I just provided you a billion dollars in pipeline and everyone in marketing is going out at 2 p.m. on a Thursday to get pina coladas. They just just hit their goal. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing because I've just pictured all these marketing types turning this program (laughs) off. But yeah, go ahead. No, absolutely. (laughs) And again, it's like I always see the same thing. Marketing is like cheering. They're like, we always hit our KPI, you know, and then sales development's cheering a little bit less, but they're still cheering. And then marketing or sales is just uh, bawling their eyes out. And the VP of sales is churned because I don't know, he or she couldn't learn how to sell is the, is the backing. So, um, so okay, that so would be my number one. That's number one. All right. Yeah. Number two. Uh, to the next KPI, uh, that's my most favorite in terms of how dysfunctional it is, is, uh, when teams round Robin inbound demo requests, the logic being that these are high highest buyer intent leads. Um, and 90% of our, whatever close one deals is off of inbound. So they round Robin the inbound, um, across the reps based on geo and give them a meeting quota. <laughs> That's my that's my second favorite. Interesting. Okay, so what, let's walk through that. <laughs> so what what uh, what strikes you as off on that? I'd say the the top three things that strike me as off of it is number one, especially if you do it based in, on geo. Uh, you know, and I'll give you an example. Um, I worked for a company that was based in Berlin, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a, aggressive marketing efforts in Berlin. I uh, ran a team in multiple geos. So we were on a round robin quota for meeting total. So the Berlin reps are killing it because they're getting tons of so demo requests. Local reps, yeah, local requests, right. Right. And especially with the argument of, well, they speak German, you know, and so these prospects do too. And so the German reps were absolutely killing their numbers. And then uh, US reps and APAC reps are like trying to make up the delta on, on outbound. Outbound is 15,000 times harder. And so it's like, okay, the German rep, you know, over a quarter, like the top quote unquote performer for Germany had set one outbound meeting in like mm-hmm. three months. And the US team, you know, and the APAC team had gotten anywhere from seven to 10. But because of the inbound line that produced 30, you know, for this inbound rep, you know, all of a sudden the, the German rep looks amazing. And I'll never forget we're at the, the meeting where they say like, hey, this giant deal closed and it's from this German rep. And hey, can you tell us what you did? Like, can you tell us the wizardry? Was the, 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 was the, the term? Phone. Yeah, was the term that they used. They said, can you tell us the magic that you did to get this deal? And he's like, I, I emailed him and set up a time. And like the meeting was over, <laughs> like, and he was, he was honest about it, but I'm like, it, it gives you no indication if you, if you round Robin, especially according to geo, um, uh, it gives you no indication on everything that a KPI system should indicate right. who's your best rep, who's working the hardest and who's the most skilled. It wipes out all three of those. Um, and you have to double pay for a marketing lead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree 100% on that. Um, all right, so your third one. Third one, um, I would say I, I'm debating on whether to go SDR-specific or sales-specific. Um, go sales. Yeah, I would say the third one would be whenever sales reps are measured on net new ARR up to six months and that the CSM gets the expansion business post six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one that I've heard a lot. So what would you do differently? I have watched it, Andy. Yeah. I have watched a, CS, a CSM walk up to me. Uh, he was French and he was like, so this opportunity is going to... Sorry, I do a terrible French accent to anyone. <laughs> no, it's amusing. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, he's like, so this is our, there's this massive expansion opportunity that's going to close, but it's five months and 28 days, so I'm going to push it. I told the prospect to push. Yeah. So their measure on expansion post yep. six months, and so they literally told a prospect that they would not sell to them the expansion deal until three days from them so that they could get credit. <laughs> so what I do differently, it's like, well, it depends on your setup. There's AMRM. It depends on if you have an AMRM cross-sell, upsell, resell mm-hmm. uh, team. If I had CSM and AE only, it depend on a multiple different variables, but I basically would do something of like, okay, you know, the AE is based off of, uh, they can retire their quota in one of two ways, you know, the land or the expand and CSM, uh, can do the same thing, but for expansion or renewal. So all of a sudden you see the AE and CSM working together 
you know, you aren't double paying, but you are measuring them against quotas of like, hey, you can either go hunt a new fish. Like if you just close LinkedIn and you have an inkling to go close, you know, a $20,000 deal at Microsoft that takes you eight months you know, mm-hmm. to close, it's like, go do it. Or you can do the easier thing and make sure that that customer is being taken care of. Make sure that you sell the deal appropriately and that you set them up for success and don't make promises you can't keep uh, so that you don't churn that deal. And then also that you deliver on the goal that they bought your software for. So I've seen a, a myriad of different software companies and they're like, oh, well, it's not my necessary, necessarily goal or it's not my responsibility um, for to help someone achieve the outcome that they sought to achieve with buying my software. I'm like, well, you're looking at it wrong. It's your opportunity. Yeah. You're saying the AE is saying that. Right. So yeah. well, companies in general, they're like, well, you know, you buy whatever piece of software, you know, and it's not necessarily my goal to help bridge, bridge you to the outcome. And I'm like, well, people are trying to impact buy more than ever. Yeah. So it's like focus on the impact and know what their goal was in buying whatever software they're going to like, you know, I'll use my last company chorus, know why they're buying chorus. Usually it's quota attainment. So help them drive quota attainment. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I would say that's the, the biggest metric when it comes to sales um, that I would probably, again, depends on the program segment, et cetera, but I would metric an AE of like, you can do land or, or expansion to retire quota um, and CSM, same thing, but with expansion or renewal. So you find the CSM not ignoring other deals to go for the expansion, but weighing the differences as if they're a CRO, uh, you know, because all of a sudden they're KPI'd, they're KPI'd as a CRO, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting because I've worked in environments where we've had the same setup. And yeah, it seems like you're working with two different definitions of expansion. And because... Yeah, what I'd want the AEs to do is to find what I call net new opportunities in that account, right? Different divisions, right? Uh, so on. So it was, in essence, a new sale, right? It's right. Just because you were using it in one division doesn't mean they were bound to use it, your product in another division. So if you could learn, or not learn, if you could discover those opportunities, then yeah, I'd want the AE to stay involved because that's what they're good at, developing right. opportunities. <laughs> Right. Um, and you'll see them earnesting up a little bit in the sales cycle of like, I'm not, not so keen to sell a deal that's going to churn. Uh, because, you know, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm based on the, the value of this contract long term. Um, and so I'm starting to hunt deals where it makes the most sense from a rev perspective, um, with churn in mind. Um, so I've seen, you know, essentially four different types of expansion sale of I'm upselling to the core user, like, you know, chorus, we had AEs, sure, we sell to more AEs, or you're selling additional features is the second kind of like, I'm going to send, you know, sell right. them some kind of suite, right. you know, or I'm going to sell the third kind as a different discipline within the same company. Mm-hmm. So BDR2 and CSM2 at chorus, you know, or the last one is what you mentioned of like, I sold into LinkedIn marketing solutions. And now all of a sudden, I got to sell into LinkedIn talent solutions. Which if it's just a CSM on the deal, it's like it's a different sale. It's a whole different sale. Oh, you don't um, leverage the relationship at all. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, if I'm not metriced correctly, the AE or the CSM in an appropriate manner, all of a sudden, you know, marketing solutions, even though um, it, it is an opportunity and it's easier because I have internal referral. If we have, you know, they're they're happy. 
um, it's going unsold uh, just because of the the way that we're comping and structuring yeah. the KPI. Interesting. Okay. Well, last question for you. Yeah. Unfortunately, I would love to go deeper on that, but we're running a little bit out of time. Is yeah. so. Tell us about your new venture. Oh, yes. So um, if you haven't already had enough of me. <laughs> <laughs> if you want more, Beck Holland. Everyone's like, I don't. I don't, Andy. I don't. Um, so I, um, TLDR, I, I started a series um, when I was at one of my former companies, G2, that just started as a, uh, with me, a, a couple of pizza boxes with some buddies in a dream. Um, and really it was, can we help? Can we help more reps hit quota? And so we started this kind of rogue organic, uh, you know, training series where I just trained reps after hours. I did five sessions and all of a sudden we had, you know, 600 registrants in an hour and packed out the building. So that's where it started. And we coined it. I'll never forget uh, one day and an SDR said, you have to name it. And I said, like what? And he said, flip the script. And I said, what script? And he goes, well, I think you're flipping over a lot of things. <laughs> So um, it stuck, and I, I took that with me to Chorus. Um, but my new venture is basically um, uh, so I LLC'd Flip the Script is now a real company, no matter mm-hmm. what my dad says. Um, <laughs> I, I've nicknamed my dad my CTO. No, there you go. <laughs> so I'm starting a um, basically um, free website where you can come and you can get free training on all kinds of different topics, whether that's cold calling, cold emailing, objection handling you know, how to personalize at scale, expansion selling, etc. But it's gonna, uh, the vision is, you know, how can we, how can we help? Um, you know, I, I just have this rep in my head, for some reason, that's in like, New Jersey, <laughs> like Hoboken, who is at the <laughs> office at 7pm can't isn't hitting quota and doesn't know why. And wants help. And one has drive uh, and doesn't have the, the keys to get there. So this is essentially, you know, a website for, you know, anyone and everyone who wants to learn, including myself, um, you know, of how can we how can we help people hit more quota than ever before and, and hopefully make a delta and make a um, an impact on the industry to, to turn sales into something different and turn it back into a game where uh, that people can win. And it's free, you said. It is. So how do you make money? I don't yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Ask ask my CTO. This is an extension of your good works. (laughs) Ask my CTO. No. So essentially, um, I mean, long story short, I have had some incredible sponsors um, that have, that wanted to be a part of it. And so we really wanted to, I had the heart and so did they to shift the quote unquote burden of the payment uh, back onto, um, back onto to companies. And so um, I have several sponsors so far, I can't name them mm-hmm. yet, um, but several very, very incredible orgs, incredible leadership teams, um, you know, that rolled the dice and, and bit the bullet and, and invested. I'm almost viewing it, I told them as a seed round, but essentially, um, it, it's not free to anyone. It's just free to uh, everyone who's consuming it, right? So, yeah. um, so I, I wanted to turn it into true KPI system, girl, I wanted to turn it into how can we build a community where it's, it's free for the person on the other end. Um, cause the people who want training the most typically are the people who don't have 
don't hold the budget for it. Right. Um, so I wanted to democratize the whole thing and say like, okay, and that, that community is very, very valuable to a certain, you know, group of sponsors. Sure, so how sure. can we help both parties uh, through something like this? So it's going to be free, free to uh, anyone. All they'll need is a company email. Wow. Okay. So like the way Facebook started, you need a, an EDU email. Right. Exactly. You'll, you will need a company email as the, the, um, the, the one requirement. <laughs> okay. And this launches when? It is October 13th. Um, I'm going to be doing several different sections. Um, three I can't announce, or three I can announce, or uh, two markably, but I'm going to uh, do one section, which is core videos. It's evergreen topics, cold calling, cold emailing, objection handling, et cetera. And then I'm going to do um, the second one that I can talk about is uh, seasons. So I'm going to pick a topic and do 20 videos on. Uh, on that topic. So the first season, I basically reshot all the videos that I did while I, I um, was at Chorus, um, you know, beefed them up and, and enriched them. Um, and uh, that season is pilot. And then season two, I'm going to start releasing on October 13th when the website goes live. Got it. And the red streak in the hair is for which season? <laughs> I hope people are listening to this after launch. <laughs> That's right. So the, We're it, teasing it, it. Season two. Season All right. two. All right. Season two is going to every single one of them is going to be color themed. Got and it. so season two, that that is going to be the change for, for season two. Perfect. So <laughs> if people want to find out more about this, where can they go? Yes, they can go to flipthescript.co and you can pre-register and um to see like uh behind the scenes updates and what we're up to. Um and uh, yeah, post-launch, same, same site, flipthescript.co, and everything will be live. Perfect. All right, Beck, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we didn't get through the half we were going to talk about. We'll have you back. We'll do it again. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I had a lot of fun. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Beck Holland, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.